Hey everyone, welcome to What Are You Watching? I'm Alex Withrow and I'm joined as always by my best friend Nick Dostal. How you doing there, Mank? Ooh, excited to be here. 2020. Christ, what a year. Fuck. What For a year. pretty much every single reason, and movies were certainly no exception. I mean, none of us could have imagined that when we sat down in a theater to see Bad Boys 3 or The Invisible Man or The Lodge, that it would be the last time we set foot in a movie theater for the rest of the calendar year. COVID kept theaters closed and people at home, some people at home. And as a result, we were given one of the oddest movie years of our lifetimes, certainly. Many of the most notable movies that were going to be released were not. So not only do we have less movies to choose from than normal, but we may be grading slightly on a curve as well, which we'll get into. But despite theaters being closed, streaming services did thrive. Many of my picks here were released on streaming services first, whether that was intentional or COVID forced their hand. So Nick Dostal, does seeing a movie on a big movie theater screen matter anymore? Is something that's released on streaming first even considered a movie? Where are we, Nick Dostal? What the fuck's going on? I don't know, Alex Withrow. <laughs> uh, um, it's certainly going to change everything this year uh, due to the to the world's events. Uh, movies have and I think forever will change in terms of how we see them. I don't think movie theaters will go away. Mm-hmm. I hope not, for the love of God. Um, I don't think that they can, but I, I, I do think that the way that the movies have come to us in this streaming platform way, I don't think that's going anywhere anytime soon. I think this is a new way of doing things, and they need to figure out how to do that financially, but um, I think this might be the new norm. Did watching movies, because you are certainly a person who left your apartment very little in the calendar, like once COVID hit, you mm-hmm. did not step foot in a movie theater at all. So did, do you think like watching movies this way, I assume all of your movies on your list or a majority of them were watched for the first time at home. Is that a different thing than watching them for the first time in the theater, which the majority of our lists when we're doing our top 10 of the year, we've seen in the theater for the first time. So is that like different? Does it make you appreciate the films more or less? It's a great question. I mean, obviously, you know, coming from like you and I, we will always choose to, if given the option, see a movie in theaters. Yeah. I don't care like what the visual style of it is. There is nothing like being surrounded in a giant room feeling an audience's energy, feeling an audience's attention, the sound, the look, and being completely transported into the movie's world. That certainly is missing from all of these movies. And and there were a few of these movies on my list that I was like, man, it would have been really great to see these in theaters. Some, not so much. Like, maybe I didn't have that direct feeling of, of this was a movie to see in theaters. Some I could take from the from my TV and be like, you know what? This was good for this. That's an interesting uh, thought and notion that I had. Um, but I, I missed movies so much. So much. It was my biggest, the, the, the hardest part of the year was not being able to get to a movie theater just to go out, just to go there to do it, just to see a new movie. So doing it at home, there's something less special. We could spend genuinely this whole conversation yeah. talking about what this year could have been, but let's actually get to what we did see. And Nick and I haven't shared our lists with each other, but there's bound to be some crossover. But we stand by these films. We recommend these films. All of my picks are available to watch right now in your home. Some, I think most of them are free. Others, maybe max, you'd have to pay six ninety nine to rent them. So let's get to it. Do you want to go first? No. I don't. I knew you were going to do that. Such a dick. Okay. Um, okay, because you pulled that stunt, I'm going to start with um, an honorable mention. I don't, you know, I, I just thought it'd be good to kind of slip this in because I had the opportunity to see Regina King's One Night in Miami on oh. Friday. Oh. And it isn't on my main list, but it, um, I'm trying to think of how to talk about this because I'm, I'm not going to give anything away, so I promise. But this movie will be released on Amazon Prime on January 15th, which is actually just tomorrow, actually, if you're listening to this episode the day we're releasing it. But One Night in Miami is a fictionalized meeting between Malcolm X, Muhammad Ali, 
who was then known as Cassius Clay, Jim Brown and Sam Cook for one night in a Miami motel room. And I'm a little biased here because you, of course, know that Ali is my favorite athlete of all time and Malcolm X is my favorite historical figure of all time. And it <laughs> I'm like looking down at a few notes I took for this. And this is like I get to hear my voice. I'm talking about this so passionately. So I'm going to. Yeah, I love it. OK, Th- this will be number 10. This isn't going to be an honorable mention because I'm looking at my number 10 and I'm like, I'm not as passionate about that movie. So, okay, One Night in Miami, I'm sorry, yes. is my number 10. So, no honorable mention, One Night in yes, Miami, here we number go. 10. We're, we're fucking going for it. So, again, I have great affection for the figures portrayed in this film, and all of the actors do them very, very good justice. This is Regina King's first movie as a director. I've been a huge fan of hers way back since Boys in the Hood. She made a really damn solid film here. Now, the reason why I'm getting passionate about it and have moved it onto my list is that because and I swear I will not spoil anything the final five moments of this movie put me in such a state where I I genuinely couldn't move and I was so shaken in a really good way this is not like a feel bad movie Um, there are tough subjects brought up of course but it has a massive emotional payoff that I did not expect and this is like the kind of movie I'm getting chills talking about that my dad is really going to like and that it's it's just it's a good one to check out. So it'll be out again January fifteenth. Amazon Prime. One night in Miami. Number ten. Amen. Awesome for free on Amazon Prime. Free, just uh, free. It's right out there, folks. It's insane. That's awesome. I can't wait for that. All right, number ten. I didn't think this movie was going to make my list, but then I couldn't stop thinking about it after I saw it, and I was like, it, it's got to go in. Any movie that I can't stop thinking about for whatever reason, to me, it's telling me something. This is Black Bear. Nice. I dude, this is just a this is just a solid solid indie movie that it it it, it gives me like feelings of like indie movies from the 90s, indie movies from like the early 2000s, like just doing some weird stuff, keeping it simple and but executing it so well. I I thought this movie really um everyone who was a part of it knew exactly what they were doing. It felt very very taken care of by the director. And I just thought the the performances across the board. I I I I I'll admit it, I'm not the biggest Aubrey Plaza fan. I um I don't think she's bad by any means, but I think I just like to see her in certain ways and she brought it in this movie, man. She was dynamic. And of course, it's got our boy Christopher Abbott. The man. Oh, God, I love him. Yeah, really twisty, good indie. It was made on a budget, pretty much one location. Give that one a, a watch. I really enjoyed that one as well, way more than I thought I would. So that was your 10. So number nine for me, there were some really good documentaries this year. They were a little hard to find, but Collective was a fantastic foreign doc about Romanian journalists exposing a massive medical corruption that killed a lot of people. Time is a great one on Amazon that covers 20 years of a woman trying to free her husband from prison. But my favorite 2020 doc was Rewind. IMDb says it was released in 2019, but it was made available to the public via Amazon Prime for free in 2020. This is a tough documentary. It's a DIY movie in which a director uses his dad's home videos to piece together the horrific abuse that this director and his family suffered for decades. This is a really, really difficult subject, but I I don't know. I've read, I've seen a lot of interviews with the director, Sasha Joseph Newlinger, and he's kind of made some references to I it may not be a bad idea to even watch this with your kids because it's not really stranger danger anymore quote unquote especially since 90% of childhood sexual abuse is committed by someone the child has been told to trust so a really good movie a tough one rewind is on Amazon Prime now nice number 9 all right i talked about this uh, in a in a previous episode but it's made its way to the list Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things. Nice. I figured it would. It definitely was going to make my list. And, you know, and, and, as, and as this movie's been out, I love the controversy that this movie brings up. I, this is a movie that either people love it or people hate it. There's no gray area. You don't watch this movie and be like, yeah, yeah, that was all right. Like, you know, you're like, fuck this movie or like, this movie's awesome. 
I'm on the side of the awesome. I thought I was just on board with everything it was doing from the get-go. I didn't care that things didn't make sense. I didn't care that I just took what the movie was giving me moment to moment. And I took that internally and I thought it, 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 it to me, it, it kind of felt like a big poem. It felt like a dream. And it was giving me so much to chew on for myself that I got lost in my own life with the movie as the movie was lost in this character, characters. I guess the best way that I could kind of sum it up is to me is about the amplitude of one's life lived. However you want to take that. Charlie Kaufman said, like, this movie is whatever you want it to be. And so I took that to heart. And I, I, I recommend for anyone who likes that type of thing. No one makes movies like this right now. They really don't. And I appreciate that. It's a cool movie. I, I mean, who's seen anything like that this year? Yeah. No one. It's on its own. Number eight for me is one that I'm, I'm going to have to assume we're going to have a little crossover. And that is Sound of Metal, directed by Darius Martyr. This is my number eight. Is it? Oh, there you go. Perfect. 8-8. Eight, eight. Martyr co-wrote The Place Beyond the Pines, and Derek C. and France, the director of that film, helped craft the story of Sound of Metal. This is visceral filmmaking on a budget. You don't need millions of dollars of special effects or tricks to tell a compelling story. And the logline here is really simple. A heavy metal drummer loses his hearing. But the emotional lengths that this movie explores for two hours are really fascinating. Riz Ahmed can do no wrong. He's the lead here. Olivia Cook is good as ever. Paul Rossi steals the show as an empathetic teacher. It would be great if Ahmed and Rossi were nominated for Oscars. We'll see. This is on Amazon Prime now, but seeing as this is your number eight, take it over. I love this one. This is this everything you said right on the money. Uh, it would be great. I, I think Riz will. I, I don't think there's any way that he can't get a nomination. God, I hope so. I mean, th- this guy was so good. And I'm going to talk about this really quick. I hated his character, like as a, as a as a person in life. Like, <laughs> no, I get it. I mean, not that he was a bad person, but he he had this frenetic energy, and it's just this like we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this, we're gonna go, we're gonna go right now. We got to, we got to. And I don't mind the hustle in 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 energies like that, but when there's no thought, like uh, like a follow through, thinking of it, I always question people. I'm like, wait, slow down. Like you haven't thought this through. And just that type of person just kind of irritates me. So to see Riz play a character so well that I'm like, I know this type of guy. I can't stand this type of guy. But then to also be so specific there, but then go through a complete sensory life-changing loss and deal with that. It was it was compelling. It, it, it was absorbing. I I I. It was unflinching. I could not look away from the screen at any moment, even when I wanted to. I'm not going to give it away, but this movie has an ending that is very very difficult to pull off, and it is so well earned. And I will leave it at that. That's so cool that it's our shared number eight. I love that. So I'll take it back. Number seven for me, a little film called Driveways, directed by Andrew Ann. In a year full of craziness, it was kind of nice to watch an honest, small, heartfelt, 83-minute-long movie. Driveways does not ask a lot of its audience, but its return is really rewarding. It's about a woman trying to clear out her estranged sister's house after her sister has passed away. This woman doesn't have a lot of money. She has a really smart and precocious nine-year-old boy. The neighbor, Brian Dennehy, starts to help out. This is a really simple movie. It's kind of got straight story vibes in that Mm -hmm. kind of hometown vibe. Oh, wow. I really enjoyed it. Dennehy absolutely still has some fight in him. And this is another movie with a very hard-to-pull-off, well-earned ending. And I just recommend it. It's an easy one. Driveways. It's on Showtime anytime for free right now. It's also available on Canopy with a library subscription. So you can get it for free on there. I need to get a library card so that I can use that app because they have a ton of great shit on there. They do. And you and it's so easy. Like it's just going to whatever library, uh, you know, that's close to you online and just put in like your information. And there you go. You got it. Right. The only thing with Canopy is like it only gives you nine views a month. So you'd have to be choosy. with oh. which, And then it resets. Interesting. But I'm glad you mentioned that movie because 
you talked to me about that movie and recommend to me, and it's one that I, I haven't quite gotten to, but you've spoken about it so highly. I didn't know it was going to make your list. So yeah, it snuck in there. Hi, hi, talk. <laughs> so you're at you're at seven now. So I'm at seven, and I'm I know for a fact this is going to be. Well, I don't know for a fact, but I'm assuming that it will. <laughs> it's got to be on your list. On the rocks, Sophia. It's not. Sorry, <gasps> it didn't make it. On the Are rocks you... was my number ten. And one night, Miami usurped it. Judas. (laughs) I will tell you at the end of your remarks why I bumped it off the list. And just know before you started, it would be my number 11. So. All right. I'll give my. Okay. He's so mad. Unbelievable. Oh, Sophia. I'm so sorry. Well, speaking of Sophia, I think she's always the star of every movie she directs, even if you've got Bill Murray. I agree. And you've got Rashida Jones. Sophia is always at the forefront with her point of view. This is just a, a simple, delightful little movie. And then you get Bill Murray, who um, is always great, but I feel like he was handed gold with this script. And then he gets to show us how it shines. You made a bunch of good points there. And again, this was really, it was really close, but I rewatched the movie this morning, actually, because I was having trouble deciding what I wanted that 10th place to be. And this movie has two different major thread lines going through it. It's Rashida Jones at figuring out the husband stuff, and then it's Rashida with Bill. Yeah. And the movie is alive when Bill is there. And the movie, to me, is far less interesting when he is not present. And I felt... All of those minutes and only on a second watch. I mean, the first time I was just kind of like delighted because this could you could make an argument. This is the best looking movie of the year because like you're saying, she Sophia is the star of her own movies. It's very it looks very expensive, has a very rich and full palette, very creamy textures there, Nick. And (laughs) there's a lot to like about it. But I thought. The chemistry between her and Bill was so much stronger than the chemistry between her and Marlon Wayans, I thought. Yeah, and that's that's fair. That's that absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I still really liked it. I mean, it's like my 11th of the year, but ultimately the last five minutes of One Night in Miami are, and by my estimation, better than anything I saw in On the Rocks. So that's kind of what made me throw it out there. But And that's fair. We're talking about good movies, though, so it's all, you know, it's all good. Yeah, see him. See these movies. <laughs> Number six for me, it's a really easy one for people to watch. It's called Let Them All Talk, directed by the great Steven Soderbergh. That's my number six. Holy shit. Oh, man, we're on a roll. Nick just started raising his hands in celebration, so I was pausing to see what he wanted. Oh, man, that's two. That's great. All right, Let Them All Talk. Soderbergh is one of my higher powers. He's one of my gods. I'm so excited now that this is your number six. And this is Soderbergh making it up as he goes along again. He wants to make a movie about three lifelong friends, and he wants to set it on a cruise ship. So that's what he does. He gets a cast and crew of 30 total. It's everyone. This includes Meryl Streep, Candace Bergen, Diane Wiest, Lucas Hedges, all the sound people, everyone. They board the Queen Mary 2 in New York, which has real passengers on it and is a fully operating vessel. They film for the duration of the trip. To England, they don't use lights. The dialogue is mostly improvised. Soderbergh uses wheelchairs as dollies. By the time they get to England, the entire movie has been shot. And by the time they get back to New York, Soderbergh, who shoots and edits all of his films himself, already has a rough cut of the movie assembled. He's a madman, and I love it. This is Meryl Streep, Candace Bergen, and Diane Weist arguing for about an hour and 15 minutes on a cruise ship. It's great. It, again, does not ask a lot of you. It's right now on HBO Max for free. I loved it. And I love that it's your number six. I loved it, too. And, and I mean, how incredible is it that that guy did that? It's nuts. He's nuts. Out of this world. And it's so funny that it's improvised a, a lot of it because it does not feel like that at all. Mm-mm. It feels like solid writing to the point where that's what I want to talk about with the is the writing so I guess I guess it's really in the performances is that these characters are all so specific with their wants every one of them we get to see them a little bit before they get onto the cruise who they are what they're about we learn something and then when we watch them throughout this movie they are using their language to either avoid or cut to the bone of the heart of the matter. Mm-hmm. It's a testament to how those actors were able to live in their choices 
and present them in an improvisational setting like that on a ship. <laughs> yeah, on a ship that's just like fully functioning, that's full of people. They carved out these tiny little sections that they were allowed to film in. And he, I've heard Soderbergh on a few podcasts promoting the movie. This movie is kind of like a time capsule now because, I mean, when will the cruise ship industry be back up? It, I, who knows? That'll be one of the last ones to kind of come back, I think. And, you know, no one's wearing masks, kind of like on the rocks. Like, it's really weird to watch that movie and just everyone walking around like Soho and Tribeca with no masks. Everyone's yeah. cool. It's like, man, it's w- what a time. But uh, let them all talk. That's awesome, man. I'm so glad you like this one. I didn't know if it was going to totally be your vibe, but I'm, I'm really cool that you liked it that much. Loved it. Absolutely loved it. All right. Number five for me is Another Round, directed by Thomas Vinterberg. Mads Milkinson and Thomas Vinterberg have worked together before. The Hunt is a really simple and terrifying film from 2012. Another Round is a little bit lighter, but no less brilliant. In the film, four middle-aged friends decide to test a psychological theory that if they always have a little bit of alcohol in their blood, it will lead to an improvement in their overall lives. Like two drinks, basically. So they make all these rules like based from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. or to 6 p.m. will be our drinking hours and we'll see how it goes. And you can kind of imagine how it goes. And it sort of turns into a rags to riches story about trying to sidestep a midlife crisis. It's a simple, great movie. And again, another very difficult but well-earned ending. But check it out. Another round. This is one that you're going to have to pay to rent, but it's on demand everywhere. Very, very excited about that. It was, And I'm pretty sure I can already tell from your excitement that it will probably hit, make my list after this is all said and done. Yeah, it's this is a crazy year. So we talked a lot about I guess I should have said this up front, but we talked a lot about when do we record our Best of 2020, because Nomadland with Francis McDormand, which everyone who has seen loves, apparently, there's no way we are going to be able to see that until, I think, the end of February. And I don't want this podcast to come out then. So, yeah, there are some that, for both of us, are just going to slip through the cracks. And it doesn't mean we are ignoring them. It just means, you know, we saw what we saw in that year, and here are our lists. But I do think you'll like another round. I'm very excited, and because I love The Hunt, too. Like, that movie, that movie is wild. That's very intense. All right, so number five, I'm going to get a little personal with this one. Weirdly, my fifth pick is Palm Springs. Cool. And the reason that this movie is on the list is because so uh, this year, um, with everything being that the way it is, um, I'm 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 no, I'm not alone in that, you know, uh, in the world of anxiety of what people have been going through due to this year. And this movie came out in June on Hulu, and I don't think I actually watched it until maybe like a couple months later. So like we're really far Mm -hmm. into this pandemic and all of this, and I was in a negative space to to be kind. And I I wasn't excited about anything. Movies, uh, things that I was working on, um, nothing was really kind of giving me anything to feel good about. And then I just turned this on. The movie grabbed me. And this is something that I always pay attention to with movies. I mean, you do as well. Is like whatever movie is, is if it grabs you and doesn't let go, that's something special. Absolutely. And it's a familiar form of storytelling that we've seen before. So there's nothing new under the sun, but it is very fresh and it's very energetic and it just popped. I was really engaged with everything that was happening. My imagination was running wild and the movie never let me go. And so I have to say that after that movie was done, I no longer felt like how I was feeling before it started. And I kept that feeling with me as time went on and I was ever reminded of like feeling down about something was remember that when I watched Palm Springs and I had that feeling and how that lifted me up. So Thank you to Palm Springs, because I'm very grateful that I was able to have that experience with a movie. Well said. And yeah, a tough year uh, for a lot of reasons. And that has disrupted a lot of people's mental health. I am certainly no stranger to having disruptions in that. And who am I to tell you or listeners how to manage anxiety and depression? One thing I do know that is infallible to me is that 
if you talk about it, it's going to help. Yeah. And you can talk about it with a friend. You can talk about it with a professional. Talk about it with your mom or dad. But speak on it and you might you might be interested to find how many people are going through the same thing you are. Yeah. Really uh, nice way to personally connect that because movies can be really important in that way and they can kind of be a saving grace. Yeah. It was the movie I needed when I needed it. Exactly. And those can be very important and mean a lot to us. For any number of personal reasons. That's why we've talked about it before, but like Antoine Fisher will always be one of my favorite movies and people will hear that and they'll be like, really, that's a movie you like. And then if I tell the story, then they're like, oh, okay. Yeah. So maybe we'll do an Antoine Fisher episode sometime. Hell yeah. (laughs) Number four from me. Hey, Nick, remember when a David Fincher movie came out this year for free and (laughs) no one talked about it? (laughs) I mean, people did dissect Mank a lot for like that first week of its release, but now... I don't see anyone mentioning it and came and went from that Netflix top 10 so quick. I did really like this movie on the first viewing. It did take a second viewing for it to fully reveal itself to me. I did. I thought it was a challenge. I love it now. I've watched it another time. And I think it's a worthy passion project from one of the very few true maximalist artists we have. And as the writer of Citizen Kane, Gary Oldman to me was light years better than he was as Winston Churchill, but that's Oscar being Oscar. I doubt he even gets nominated for this. Um, will this movie be remembered at all come Oscar nominations? I I don't know anymore. I remember texting you right after and I said, I'm pretty sure Amanda Seyfried's going to be the lock here just because they like to award performances like this. You know, Kate Blanchett won for playing Catherine Heppard. So they like, and it's a really good job from her that I frankly didn't really know she had in her. And I liked, I really, really appreciated it. But is that even on the table anymore? Is this like, is Fincher going to get it? I, I don't know. That's my thoughts on Mank. It's Mank is on Netflix for free right now. But that's my number four. I wouldn't be surprised if that movie sweeps in that regard to the Oscars. We'll see. I don't know. That is like the essential Oscar movie. It's because it's talking about its history, its lore, its why people love the movies. I've been thinking a lot about that, but the Oscar branch has grown dramatically. The amount of Oscar voters, because they've been inviting so many younger people, so many younger, you know, more diverse, which is great. Like I'm, I'm here for it. However, do these people, do they care about Citizen Kane? Have they seen it? Do they like, I mean, you know, when the Oscars was primarily old, crusty white dudes, I think, yeah, they're all in yeah. for something like this. That's why the artist wins Best Picture. Mm. But it's going to be a very interesting Oscar season for many reasons. The, you know, the nominations are usually out kind of in a couple weeks. And then the Oscars are in February or March now. I don't even know when the hell the nominations are, honestly. I don't even know when. Oscar season like stops because it's always January 1st to December 31st. I don't know when the eligibility requirements end. I think the Oscars are airing at the end of April. So so we're going to have some 2020 movies and 2021 movies vying for Oscars. Yeah. I don't know. And who knows? That's a whole other podcast because who knows what this is going to do to the 2021 Oscars and then the 2022. Yeah. At some point, they're going to have to go back to the calendar year. But anyway, I, I certainly hope you're right. If there's a mank sweep, cool. You're not going to hear me complain. <laughs> Number four for me. So this is a movie that you recommended on a previous podcast, The Outpost. Oh, nice. Dude, this movie made it for me, man. I I was absolutely floored on every level. Um, I couldn't believe that this was a true story. So the premise of this movie is there's this outpost in Afghanistan, um, one of the many, but um, there were a few of them that were positioned in the worst possible locations with the least amount of support from anything and they were they were there to keep the peace in the city and town that they were in all the while being completely vulnerable to attack and so you're watching this group of a small group of soldiers live in this reality and deal with it and then you know it's a war movie mm-hmm. um i remember you were talking about you know your work with veterans and how this movie is received amongst veterans mm-hmm very very positively from them as as a source of this was a good example to understand what we went through by the time this movie was over i i really understood that for them like uh i really felt that something like this and what they go through and what they do and what's asked of them and what they overcome it's it's astounding also Caleb Landry Jones 
it, I, I won't say anything, but the uh, the very uh, his very last scene in the movie, oh man, is one of the greatest pieces of singular acting I've ever seen. I, I I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it. It it was me too. Tremendous. I'm really really thrilled that you mentioned it because I wanted to, you know, I was looking for a way to include it, but. Yeah, this so this is directed by Rod Laurie, and I have a personal appreciation for him because he was like the first first celebrity to like engage with me on Twitter. This is wait, this is like back uh-huh. in 2011. He made a movie in 2000 called The Contender with Joan Allen and Jeff Bridges and Gary Oldman that I absolutely love. So I and he's cool. He'll engage with you about stuff, but these most recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan are very hard to get right cinematically and. And this movie just went right for focusing on the soldier. There is Mm -hmm. politics involved, certainly. And then Caleb Landry Jones putting a lot of the emotional weight on his shoulders was, I think I said in our bonus episode, that's one of the the smartest decisions Rod Laurie's ever made. And that Mm -hmm. is, um, we were talking about Oscar talk, like, I know that's not really the type of movie that may attract Oscar attention, but Jones certainly deserves accolades for that. That's still the best supporting performance I've seen this year. Yeah, I mean, it's God. outstanding. I'm so glad that made your list. I had no idea it was going to. It affected me deeply. I watched it on Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I remember yeah. you told me you did. <laughs> well, happy Thanksgiving. Yeah. Man. Number three for me, that's another one I'm going to, I have to assume is on your list. Possessor, directed by Brandon Cronenberg. It is on my list. Not here yet, though. Well, that's that's exciting. We both recommended this movie and a bonus episode, the same bonus episode, a little bit ago. But Possessor is a great throwback to expertly made, insanely gory sci-fi thrillers. No special effects in the gore. It's just raw and it's right there. We see movies that try this semi-futuristic stuff a lot, but none with this much bite. And this movie's one hell of a ride. I don't know if it's fair to call it quote-unquote fun, but it is very well made for the type of film it is. And it should be mentioned that every actor here is fully committed. There isn't an ounce of, like, sci-fi hokiness. They are all game, namely and especially our man Christopher Abbott, who between his performances in Possessor and Black Bear, which I'm really glad you mentioned, he just had a hell of a 2020. We both really, really love this guy. We always root for this guy. You can rent Possessor right now on demand for a fee. This is this is the only movie of the year that I have rented for a price twice. I paid six ninety nine for it, and then I think and then I was like, dude, you got to watch this. And I watched it twice because you can rent it for forty eight hours. Watched it twice. Told you, and I think it took you like a month to watch it. And then when you were texting me about it, I'm like, shit, I gotta do this again. And then when I was renting it a second time, I was like, hmm, should if I buy it. It's cheaper than having rented it. And I, I still have never purchased a movie digitally. Never. I've yeah. never, like, I've rented plenty, but I've never spent, like, the, whatever, twelve ninety nine, nineteen ninety nine yeah. to, like, always have it on your device. So I almost considered it with this, and then I, I think it comes out on Blu-ray really soon, actually, so I'll probably just be old school and buy that. But anyway, Possessor is my number three. Yeah, I figured let's talk about it now because it's close because this is my number two. Yeah, let's do it. It's my number two and we're in it. And so I'm going to I'm going to go with it because um, I got something I want to say about this movie. It made me think a lot about the times we're living in in a weird way. I just couldn't believe that a movie was doing the stuff that it was doing. But it wasn't just gratuitous. It wasn't just... Um, doing things for no reason. It was stylistic. It was smart. It was cool. Because I noticed, because I'm watching this this moment, this very particular violent moment happen, and I was, like, animated in my seat in my chair, just going, look at this shit. Because it's prosthetics. It's movie violence done really, really well. And I'm like, we do not see this anymore. We do not see this type of violence done so stylistically and so, I'm going to say it, cool. Mm -hmm. Brandon Cronenberg is very obviously his father's son, and I am more than curious to see where his career goes. So I'm glad that was your number two. That was my number three. So we are at your number three. So now my number three. I, 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 again, I couldn't stop thinking about this movie after I saw it. The Nest. Oh, nice. I, um, if, if there was one word I could probably think of to sum up this movie in all capacities, it's deliberate in everything, in its pacing, in its setting, in its execution, in its performances. 
everything about this movie was so well taken care of. You just get these powerhouse performances. I kept seeing that. I keep saying that about Carrie Coon. What a dynamic actor she is. I I love her and um and Jude Law. I love that guy. I it's so good to see because you know sometimes he doesn't get the best quality of work in my opinion for how good he is. And this was an mm-hmm. example of like yes, this is exactly how good he is and. This won't ruin anything, but there's a cab uh, taxi scene that he's in that I think is his greatest piece of film acting I've seen him do. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, it was good. I was is hauntingly good. Okay, number two for me. You know, it's crazy that this has happened two years in a row when I think my year is all patched up. My list is looking good, balanced, clean. And then I stumble across a movie that completely disrupts not only my silly list, but my movie year in general and in some ways my life. (laughs) Waves was that film last year. Pieces of a Woman is that film this year. The movie is directed and written by a husband and wife team, Cornell Mondruxo and Kata Verber. It is based on a stage play of theirs and... It's a story about a woman coming to terms with her grief after surviving a really tragic childbirth. According to the writer-director team, the film is very autobiographical, and this material is right in my wheelhouse, and the execution of the film felt honestly tailor-made to my aesthetic tastes. I loved it. I loved absolutely everything about it. Certainly the most emotionally gutting film of 2020 for me, and as you know, I like diving into the pain. Vanessa Kirby gives the best performance of the year for me. She's in Jenna Rowland's Woman Under the Influence territory here. Full commitment, no looking back. Um, I, I've been trying to think a lot about this. I'm not sure if I've ever seen Shia LaBeouf more committed or better than he is here. I, it's, it's tough to say. He plays Kirby's boorish partner. Ellen Burstyn as the mom should win supporting actress, I think. Eliza Schlesinger, a comedian I've loved for 10 years, plays the sister. I'm really happy Eliza's landed this part. This Pieces of a Woman is a tough film. It's grueling. It's purposeful. There's a scene toward the end of the film that I'm not, I don't want to spoil anything, but it involves a hat that is the most moving thing I saw in 2020. And it gutted me. I was a mess. Um, This, I'm going to talk about a little more since it didn't make your list, but This movie lives in the same world of pain and understanding that shame, waves, rust and bone, all movies I've talked about on this podcast, but but the one I've been drawing the most comparison to is Blue Valentine, because Mm. I don't know, Blue Valentine came out in 2010. It was such a ferocious way to start the decade. It ended up being in my top five of that decade. And, you know, now we're at 2020, rather 2020 just ended pieces of a woman puts me in the same place and I didn't just love this movie I'm indebted to it and that's a different level of appreciation for me so this movie is available on Netflix now for free if you have Netflix it's so wild to me that you can just watch this on your phone right now if you wanted to I've watched it three times in four days um yeah pieces of a woman I really really liked it tough movie I can already see in like some of the things that I I see on Twitter um, and social media about people with this movie and everyone, and I won't say anything, but you know, people like to talk about the first 30 minutes of this movie. Um, and I, mm-hmm. if you watch this movie, you'll understand why everyone keeps talking about that. Um, that to me was one of the most visceral and raw uh, experiences I've had watching anything in my life. It and it, and it was it was flawless. It really it, it was. Um, I wish there. I, I told you this. I wish there was a camera on me as I was watching that because I don't think. I at one point like I I got behind my chair because I didn't want to deal with what I was seeing and and I couldn't look away though. Yeah, it was th- that emotionally stirring of a sequence. I mean, this is the way the game is played now, but I would have really liked to have seen this one in a theater and be trapped there mm-hmm. and, you know, not in a bright living room, just be trapped in that, yeah, all-consuming opening 30 minutes, certainly. So that's my number two. We did your number two, and now we arrive at number one, and this is how it has to end. Yes. With a somewhat controversial choice, as you could argue that this is five films instead of one, but... Regardless, we both have chosen Steve McQueen's film series, Small Axe, as our favorite film of the year. Small Axe, man. Good Christ. Um, 
what can I say? One of the best living true artists in the world linked up with BBC and Amazon and made five feature films about five different stories, all involving West Indian immigrants in London in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Three of the films are based on true events. One is a more general representation of a time and place, and one is the director's own autobiographical statement. As a collection of films, Small Axe is right up there with the best anthology film certainly I've ever seen. The films have nothing in common other than their themes. They share no characters or plot lines. You don't have to see one to understand the others and so on. So... Have we ever seen anything else like this? Like, this is just such a cool exercise. And before we break down each movie, I just wanted to get your small acts thoughts in general. Well, this was the only thing that we had talked about going into this podcast because we like to keep everything secret because it's fun that way. Mm-hmm. But we we were both honest with each other. and We're like, listen, is there anything better? Like, like because like we this needs to be talked about in its own uh, category, even though it is five separate pieces of work under the same umbrella of this thing, but that that's just how special this is. Mm-hmm. If you ask me, like all five of these are the best things of the year individually. How can one man <laughs> do something so ambitious and so good? Every one of these movies is so well fucking done. It's baffling, and it's and it's not only is it that good, it's that important. Mm-hmm. The content and themes of of this series involves racism, and it is as relevant now as it was in the time periods that uh, these movies showcase. It's difficult. It's unsettling. It's unnerving. But it's vital, it, mm-hmm. it, and and this is this is what art can do. This is if you're talking about what's going on in the world today, and you want to make a statement about it and put it in art. This is how you do it. Yeah, absolutely. And there's just there's a lot to unpack here, and we are going to spend some dedicated time on small acts here because he and even you say like, how does one man do this? Which I totally agree with. And then I listen to him on podcasts, and he talks about it. He never talks about how filming something was challenging. There's no. never like, oh my God, it's so difficult. He's like, yeah, we just put, he films with one camera, one fucking camera. And he's like, yeah, we just put it there. And yeah, we just watch him dance, watch him go yeah. around. That's, well, I mean, well, oh, why did I, why did the camera stay on the colander spinning? Well, that, that's the scene. That's what you have to wait till the disruption ends, till the full moment of disruption. And you're like, it's baffling to me. It's, he's not unlike Soderbergh in that I hear him talking. I'm like, oh, you just, you're such a genius. You don't understand that like other people aren't as filmically intelligent as you are. Like this stuff just comes so naturally to you that it's not even a fucking challenge. Or if it is, you're not exploiting those challenges. So that's one kind of aspect of it. Another aspect of it, and a far more important one, is the monumental issue of race here. That he filmed this before the racial disruption of 2020 and the fact that they are coming out now. And I don't see enough people talking about them. And this is simply put, it's it's the best content I watched in 2020. That's an awful word, I know, but it just is. And each film on its own deserves praise. And I've been selling this really hard to everyone I know, and they're all available for free. Amazon Prime, so many people have it. They're right there. So yeah, we're going to break down each of the five films now. We're going to go in order. So we'll start with Mangrove. Mangrove. Mangrove is based partly on the trial of the Mangrove Nine from 1971. The film is honestly devastating in its simplicity. This is a movie about a black man who wants to open a restaurant in Notting Hill and simply cannot rationalize why white police officers won't allow it. He's not doing anything illegal in his restaurant. He's just serving spicy food to anyone who will buy it. But the racism of these cops is so ingrained in their personalities that they cannot let this poor guy just fucking be. This leads to an uprising in the streets, which ultimately lands the owner of Mangrove and many of its supporters on trial for rioting. Mangrove, to me, was kind of like the art house version of Trial of the Chicago 7. And I don't want, quote unquote, art house to suggest that Mangrove is not accessible because it is. But the emotion of this movie is so, so palpable and rich. Flawless acting all around. This is an infuriating film yeah. in terms of its topic, but that is the point. 
Absolutely. And um, I, I like that you brought up the trial of the Chicago 7 in an off-way comparison because mm-hmm. I like that movie a lot. I, we both talked Me about too. that Me too. And, and, and said, like, you know, solid courtroom flick. And when you see Mangrove, this is a trial movie with balls like mm-hmm. and, and saying something that is truly meaningful and and as much as I love Trial of Chicago Seven, it's very safe. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Mangrove is not, and that's what is needed, in my opinion. I remember watching for the first time and kind of thinking about it from a like just a a movie making standpoint of watching these white police officers continuously invade this this restaurant and and beat these people and and I, I started to think about it and I go. These cops are so just one dimensional. Yeah. Like they're like they're like and, and and then I was thinking about it and I go, Steve McQueen is way too smart of a director to make anything in his movies one dimensional. And then it dawned on me, I go, Oh, that's the point. Mm-hmm. Like racism is one dimensional. Completely. Uh, ignorance is one dimensional. And this type of of corruption is one dimensional, and that's the point. And and that made it so much more infuriating to me to watch it because he does not hide from that. But how profound, like in just a simple way of doing that. And I, I thought that was that was that was a very, very cool moment to have watching the movie, how something dawns on you like that. Mm-hmm. And you realize what's actually your the the creator of this is really trying to say. Yeah. And he knows who his movies are about. These movies are not about the cops. And Steve McQueen is not afraid to call a monster a monster because you watch 12 Years a Slave. Michael Fassbender's character does not have a single redeemable quality. Mm-hmm. And he's he's like, why, why is he going to give him Why is he going to give one of these police officers like a scene with his wife or like, you know, he has a newborn baby. It's like, nope, a monster is a monster. And Mangrove's really important. Yeah. Great way to start off. We move on to Lover's Rock, the most experimental film in the group. Yes. It's about a group of people who decide to turn one of their homes into a house party for the evening. This is a place where West Indian people can come and enjoy talking, dancing, drinking, weed, music for a small price. And they don't have to worry about getting harassed by the white outside world. Lover's Rock is a place of refuge. It's a place where the camera can linger and linger and linger as a young man and woman come to understand each other or maybe even fall in love simply through their slow dance movements. Lover's Rock is, oh, fuck, it's a spell. It's a thing of wonder, a museum installation. I have never seen a movie like this. It is 70 minutes long and every single second is used intentionally. And, you know, I'm glad you brought up how you were kind of questioning McQueen during Mangrove because the first time I watched this movie, it lost me. During that silly game scene that I've referenced with the lingering camera and the dancing, because in this scene, the camera just stays on these slow moving bodies. And I kept staring at the screen, questioning McQueen, why are we watching this for so long? Why am I watching these people just be? And there it is. There it is. That's the whole fucking point. We are watching people just be. We watch Lovers Rock and Rockers Love. That is the scene of the year. How dare I question it? And let me be clear, just because you enter into a place where there's no outside white burden, let's call it, it doesn't mean you're free of danger. There's still danger within your own little group. And that's represented here, not in a crazy way, just in a very realistic way. This is a simple film about what it means to be young and alive. I think it is an absolute masterpiece. Lovers rock. I can't say anything better that you said everything that I could ever hope to say about it. And I, yeah, I. God, I love this. And it hands down for me, best cinematography of the year. Oh, yeah. If at all, anything from Small X is going to go into the Oscar conversation, but hopefully it does. I have to interrupt you real quick. Yeah, yeah. Because you brought it up real quick. They've already submitted this for Emmy contention. So this is not going to be available for Oscars. This is part of what muddles the conversation. Uh, it's like, man, we, we, we may even catch grief about, hey, you know, Small Axe is up for Emmys, right? So is, is it technically TV? Is it a movie? This is where the lines are blurred. We talked about this off air and we came to the decision that we are including this as one kind of, you know, one group of films, one body of work. But yeah, I mean, I, if this, I don't know, if these were available if these were eligible for Oscar nominations, I, to, in my world, it would dominate 
every category. So I, I, I don't know. But it is a shame. It, it that is. They're not gonna, it's not going to be up there for Oscars. Yeah. Uh, listening to Steve McQueen on a podcast, the the host of the podcast asked him, um, like, how do you write that in your script? Like, you, how you're going to do what we see in this movie? And he goes, you can't write that. Mm-mm. And you never hear writers, directors talk about what's what they don't do. And I feel like when you're looking at a screenplay, there's so many rules and there's so many this, there's so many that, that you have to do it because you have to put it into the script. He knew what he wanted that scene to be. And he knew that you can't write it. Yeah. I'm going to set it up. We're going to have this music. We're going to have these actors and the camera is going to find its way to show what's going on. And I mean, just to have that level of confidence and trust that you know how it's it's going to work out. Yeah. And to and to not worry about putting it in the script. I think that's very freeing if any screenwriters are listening that if you know what you want and you know how you want to do it and there is no other way to write it, then don't fucking write it. I'm glad you mentioned that because I've read a few of McQueen's scripts and they are very different even from the way you and I write. They are very compact, very simple very little descriptive action it's just oh they almost read like plays like boom 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 because he when you read interviews or listen to podcasts with him he's so affected by what's going to happen on the day right there yeah what is it going to look like when that sun is blocked by that cloud and it comes in through that window then we'll put it on or whatever that is he's so much you know, he's so concerned with that. And he tells he has this great story of that toward the end of 12 Years a Slave. There's a really long shot of Chiwetel Ejiofor where he's just standing there and it looks like he's kind of looking in the camera. And it's right before I think I think it's right before the very end. And he's spacing off and they shot that in a parking lot, like right next to their trailers, just because he was so in, in the character that they went do you want to just fire this up real quick and do this? It was at the end of the day. It wasn't shot listed. It wasn't anything. So he's very heavily impacted by his environment and that you can't, you actually cannot write that because you cannot assume how your live environment is going to be what nine months down the road when you're filming it or whatever. So yeah, that, that is a really, really good lesson for writers slash directors in particular. Yeah. Next up is red, white, and blue. This is the true story of Leroy Logan played here by John Boyega, who's probably the most... Small X doesn't have a lot of notable actors, at least in America. I didn't recognize a lot of them, but I would say he's probably the most famous. Logan was a research scientist who joined the London Metropolitan Police in an effort to fight racism from within the force. The movie is about that career transition, his first few months as an officer, and how his traditional and strict family reacts to it. I thought this was the most... I guess, ferocious of the small axe films. It has a very clear narrative path. There's nothing inherently experimental about it. And Boyega is so damn fierce in this. It's my favorite thing he's done. This movie contains such incredibly realistic hand-to-hand conflict sequences. And yet among all that intensity, it ends with such a gentle human moment. And I really appreciated that, you know? A story and a smile. And I loved the dynamic of the generations Mm -hmm. between father and son, because you're talking about the same racism in a different generation and experienced by a man who's lived it and a man who's trying to change it. Right. And, And the questions that that raises and the realities of John Boyega's character throughout this are just, yeah, again, important viewing, important viewing. Mm -hmm. Next up, I think the best band name I've ever heard is Crucial Rocker, but only if it is said by the title character of our next film, Alex Weedle. (laughs) (laughs) This is a true story about an orphan in London trying to figure out his young adult life. He makes friends, has fun, gets in trouble, lands in prison, and that actually turns out to be his saving grace because inside he is inspired by his cellmate, Simeon, who encourages Alex to read learn and educate himself. Simeon is played by Robbie G, who was Vinny in Snatch, and I know you got a big kick out of that, as did I. It's wild. Yeah. And Alex Weedle is a humble film with a really strong message that if you learn something, that is one thing that no one can ever take away from you. It took me probably after college to know that for myself, but I think that's a really, really powerful message. And Some of us come from varying degrees of pain 
of isolation and abandonment and trauma. But no matter who you are or where you are, you can always open a book. Mm -hmm. And I like that the film represented that without ever being forceful or didactic. This is a really good one. I really liked it. I mean, I like all of them. What can I say? Yeah, I know. They're all so good. <laughs> I, I love this one so much because it's one of the shorter ones. I think it clocks in at 64, 67 minutes. In that time, we see this main character of Alex Weedle. Um, we get to know him from a, a boy, an orphan, who was never told at all who he is or how to do things. He was subjected to certain bits of... Um, abuse that you'll see in the movie um, for reasons he doesn't know. He doesn't know why he was being scolded. He doesn't know why he was being hit. He doesn't know why. He doesn't know anything. Mm -hmm. To truly watch a character go from a child to a young adult and not know anything of how to do anything, this is nuts. Like, I, I can't believe that. And there's people that, 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 go through life like this and he's finding himself through people that he meets through music music in this movie i mean throughout the whole entire small act series like music is a very important part of every of every piece of the work that mcqueen's doing here but i really resonate with the music in this one and um i feel i guess I'll wrap this up by saying that within 65 minutes more or less you get to experience a full young adult life lived mm -hmm. in in ways that television seasons will go for, you know, seasons and seasons and seasons of character development. And you will never even remotely achieve a level of understanding to one individual person you'll get in these 60 minutes. Yeah, I completely agree. And that is the stamp of a true artist who knows how to pick and choose scenes and moments to fully represent a life in one hour. It's astounding. The final film is perhaps the most straightforward and humane. Education is about a young boy named Kingsley who is spirited, smart, and a gifted drawler, but he's also dyslexic and cannot read. Now, because Kingsley is a black boy with West Indian parents currently living in London, it's hinted and then outright proven that his white teachers do not want to take the time to help Kingsley. He's shipped off to a school for the, quote, educationally subnormal, and he is bound to fall into a life of miseducation and poverty, which he will then likely pass on to his children and the wheels go round and round. Sounds awfully hmm, systemic to me, doesn't it? I don't know. Yeah. Kingsley's parents are stern. His mother demands excellence and his father thinks education is futile as learning a trade is the only real honest man's work. But Kingsley is sensitive. He's smart and he wants to learn. And it's really, really powerful to see all of these strong personalities and generations butt heads over a smart little boy who just wants to be smarter. I found this to be the most emotionally affecting of the five films, especially when I learned that McQueen based it heavily on his own experiences growing up. Mm -hmm. McQueen was dyslexic as a child, and the parallels here must have been challenging for him to put on screen. Education. It certainly was one of the ones for me that was the most unsettling um, just to see that type of treatment. One thing that I loved about this one was you get a very wide range of the systemic Issues from people that are running it matched with people who are within that system that are really caring. And um, that one actress, I don't know her name, um, but she appears halfway through and she it, it, to see someone who like a teacher who truly cares like that mm -hmm. to me was beautiful to see that. I, I love that little bit. I thought that was just such a wonderful person to meet in this story. What that character proved to me is that. Caring isn't enough. You have to really, really fight yeah. for what you believe and what you're committed in. And that includes having many conversations with this extremely stern and traditional mother about, no, 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 Kingsley is not an obstinate boy. He literally cannot read because his teachers do not give a shit about him. And having to fight for that child. Yeah, I just, I mean, small acts in general, like, good God, yeah. what, a, what a thrill. It's I I watched them all the the weekends they came out. They came out five Fridays in a row. And then I reserved the whole day 
over the holiday break to watch them all in one day. And I had a blast and I did boom, boom, boom. I watched, made myself a little marathon. I watched the trailer for the movie first and then each film. You're a madman. Yeah, I was just going to say I'm a madman. What do you expect? Like it took, I love it. you know, eight hours, but yeah, okay. So let's do our rankings here. We'll just, just real okay. quick, 10 through one. And then when we get the small acts, we'll each rank our, you know, just in preference. It's like ranking different bars of gold, but yeah. Do you want to go first, or I assume you want me to go first? Um, yeah, you go first. Yeah, imagine that. Big shocker. <laughs> All right, so my, my list, real quick. Ten, One Night in Miami. Nine, Rewind. Eight, Sound of Metal. Seven, Driveways. Six, Let Them All Talk. Five, Another Round. Four, Mank. Three, Possessor. Two, Pieces of a Woman. One, Small Axe. And I'm going to rank those. This is a little bit, you know, kind of silly, but five, Red, White, and Blue, four, Alex Weedle, three, Mangrove, two, Education, one, Lover's Rock. And real quick before you go, if anyone wants to give me crap, which is fair, (laughs) take, remove Small Axe and just put Lover's Rock as my favorite film of the year and I hold it up. That's fine. I'm totally fine doing that. And like, you know, if if I'm going through this nine years from now and someone's like, no, man, you only got to pick one movie. I'll, it's Lover's Rock. So as it is now, we're going to include all the small acts. So that's my list. Starting off at 10, Black Bear. Nine, I'm thinking of ending things. Eight, Sound of Metal. Seven, On the Rocks. Six, Let Them All Talk. Five, Palm Springs. Four, The Outpost. Three, The Nest. Two, Possessor. And I should also say Possessor Uncut. because we, Yeah, that is a distinction yeah. to make. Yeah. If you're going to go for it, just go for the uncut version. Yeah. And number one, Small Axe. And to list these starting from five to one, Education, Red, White, and Blue, Mangrove, Alex Weedle, Lover's Rock. And if I had to and to pick just one, because if someone just wants to give you that one, Lovers Rock. I mean, I need to cross-reference myself on this, but I don't know if I've ever had a 70-minute movie be my favorite movie of the year. He does so much in such a short period of time, but that's it from us. Our favorite films of 2020. We're definitely not done talking about these movies, as we kind of mentioned, because they're going to be popping up around Oscar time this spring. So we'll see. But let's end with... What are you watching? Um, you're going to go first on this one. All right. That's fair. All right. So this, I, I, I imagine me going to cheat a little bit. Um, so I'm going to throw this movie in as an asterisk for what didn't go into my top 20 of or top 10 of 2020. Yeah. Um, but a movie I did want to put out because I enjoyed it so much. Uh, that's Bill and Ted's Face the Music. That's awesome, man. <laughs> I had such a fun time with this movie. If if you would all like the first two, um, this one is a solid and well-earned insertion into the trilogy. And because it, it could have sucked. And it and it was and it was it was a it was a fun, fun time. So Bill and Ted face the music. Nice, nice. I I've had to scramble a little bit here because I had the same thing in mind, and I was gonna talk about <laughs> Uh, on the rocks since it didn't make my you know listen that we talked about that and then i crossed it out and put the outpost there and then you covered that one for us too so that's great so i'm i've had yeah i've had to scramble here kind of live but what i went back and rewatched after my small axe marathon is i immediately went to widows by steve mcqueen because i saw that once in the theater with you Mm -hmm. and then bought the blu-ray and only saw it once and that just that's just a really good movie that not a lot of people saw that thing came and went and it was so baffling to me and viola davis we all know she's great and she wins the oscar for fences and now she's back in the oscar conversation deservedly so for ma rainey's black bottom but i mean there's this perfect intense human real performance from her in widows that i just didn't get talked about enough and i really really liked that movie and i always wanted it discussed more so i cannot wait to see where this man's career goes i don't know how you every time he makes a movie i'm like how do you best this yeah like i i don't i don't know if you can like best it but hey if he is gonna be given the freedom to make five movies and you know in one go then i'm here for it every single time 
So if you do check out some of our picks, let us know on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. We're on there all the time. We love hearing if we've motivated you to check something out. But as always, thanks for listening and happy watching. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. You can watch my films and read my movie blog at alexwithrow.com. NicholasDostal.com is where you can find all of Nick's film work. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at whatareyouwatchingpodcast at gmail.com. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W underscore podcast. Next time, we're going to switch from our favorite movies of 2020 to the best movies we discovered in 2020. This is going to be a hardcore film geek episode for sure. Stay tuned. Okay. <laughs> God, I hope my voice doesn't crap out on me. Okay. Jesus Christ. Those right. are... I, Wyatt, I am rolling. Thank you. Thank you for being on time. <laughs> <laughs> hey everyone welcome uh, <laughs>